0: I want to ask you to just do one thing for me today, those of you who participated in Impact this weekend, okay? I just want to ask you not to yawn while I talk, if you don't mind, all right? And just make make eye contact with me the whole time, please. That's all all I'm asking of you. And uh, if you do yawn, I'll just call your name. No big deal, all right? No, just give me your attention for twenty minutes or so, and then I'm going to ask you for one more thing, and we'll be done, all right? So uh, let me also just say before I dive in that I'm very thankful for our AV team. They're always doing things behind the scenes, but today especially, they're bailing me out because I came to them because of my own misunderstanding uh, last minute, ended up being a last minute request, and uh, I appreciate Larry and Terry and Josh. Of course, Josh gets paid, overpaid to do that, but uh, I still appreciate him, and uh, thank you guys for, for taking care of me today. Um, so, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew for a while, and uh, if you remember, we, we put this up here at the very beginning of our, our talk, talking about the structure of Matthew, and you had the, the preparation for Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, in the first four chapters, and then from there you move to the proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And now today we get to the climax of this material. And then next year, here's what's going to happen, okay? We're going to stop here, and because that, we're doing that because our goal is to cover not just one part of the Bible, we want to teach from all of the Bible. So we're going to be shifting gears, we're going to take August as a time to talk about some, some uh, more particular Areas of, of emphasis here at this church, talk some about what's on our website, uh, and then we're moving into a study of the Old Testament in September. And so then next year we're going to return to Matthew and keep going. That's just to keep us from getting bogged down in one section of Scripture and spending all year there. We want to we be hearing from the whole Bible as we, as we teach and preach at this church. So that's, that's what's coming today. We finish up, though, on these first 16 chapters of Matthew. From chapter 4, 17 through 16, 20, uh, this is the section where you get to the proclamation of Jesus, the Son of God, and people are asking, who is he? That's what we're seeing in this text. Who is this guy? And we've watched him do all kinds of mighty things. Healing lepers, healing blind people, walking on water, calming a storm, taking a little bit of food and feeding thousands of people. And the question we're supposed to be asking is the same question that they're asking is, who is this guy? What should we think about him? And now we come finally to chapter 16, and Jesus, who for whatever reasons has not come out directly and stated, hey, here's who I am, he turns to his disciples here and says, hey, what do you think? Who do you think I am? That is still the question we have to ask and answer today. Who do you think Jesus is? And I want you to know that your answer to that question will determine the direction of your life. And if you have eyes to see and to answer correctly, it will change your life. Today, we join with the disciples to ask this question that's been asked down through the ages and comes to confront us today here in this church again. Today... Do you know that American Christianity is divided between liberal Christianity and conservative Christianity? Liberal Christianity denying doctrines like uh, the authority of the word, denying things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus, denying uh, uh, the atonement, at least certain understandings of of the atonement, things like that. Conservative Christianity affirming those doctrines. Do you know what liberal Christianity and conservative Christianity is united upon? They're not divided about this. The greatness of Jesus, in their admiration for Jesus. Everybody wants to claim Jesus. Even people who are criticizing and tearing down the church, they will use Jesus to do it sometimes. Everybody wants to claim Jesus. Today, Hindus will tell you that Jesus is an incarnation of God. Not the only incarnation, but he's an incarnation of God. Muslims will say he's a great prophet. Buddhists say he's a, a bodhisattva, a, a, a a Buddha-to-be, someone who's uh, uh, reached a perfection in the area of compassion. Hare Krishna has claimed that he is the uh, incarnation of Krishna, I believe. Uh, that's a, that's a, sect of Hindu, a mystical sect of Hinduism. Uh, uh, the Taoists claim that Jesus is the eternal Tao. Everybody wants Jesus on their side. And you may see these people on your TVs, you know, being very hard on the Christian faith, very resistant to the doctrinal truth of the Christian faith. But people like Deepak Chopra. Have you have you heard of Deepak Chopra? Oprah's buddy. She used to have him on. Yeah, some of you have. Uh, he's a, a spiritualist kind of guy, leading figure publicly talking about spiritual things. That's what everybody wants today. They want to be spiritual without religion. And spiritual, have Jesus as a teacher, but not as a savior. And and this, here's what. What uh, Deepak says, there are two versions of Jesus in history, the sketchy historical figure and the abstract theological creation. That's like the Son of God, member of the Trinity, right? The sketchy historical figure. That guy back there we don't really know much about, but the the scriptures just have stuff there that we can't can't really trust. And then he says, these two have taken from the world something precious, The Jesus who taught his followers how to reach God consciousness. Hmm. How's he know that? (laughs) What are his historical sources, anyway? (laughs) But you see, this is this is pretty standard fare for people who want to keep Jesus, but they don't want to keep the Bible, and they don't want to keep the gospel picture of Jesus. So this actually basically the same thing was said by sort of the founder of liberal Protestantism, Friedrich Schleiermacher, years ago. Jesus was the epitome of someone who had an experience of God and was conscious of God. You see, what, here, here's the idea. You strip Jesus of being somebody we can know anything about historically. Well, we can't trust the Gospels. whole other conversation to have about that, but, but that's what, that's what the, the line is. You can't trust the Gospels and what they say about Jesus, and you can't trust the tradition that says he's, you know, all this theological embellishment about him being this great a member of the Trinity. So what is it? Well, we'll just say, he's this great guy. He was conscious of God, just like you can be, without believing anything of substance about Jesus, really. And then everything starts to fall in place with a totally different understanding, a totally different worldview. What you need is to be awakened to the spark of divinity inside you. And this is just New Age spirituality, you guys. Look it up. Be awakened to the spark of divinity inside you. You don't need a savior. You're not a broken sinner. You need a teacher. You need a guru to teach you, to awaken the goodness that's in you, not someone to save you from your sins. You know, know, on on and on it goes with with that, that kind of thing. And this is what people present today. And I wonder what would happen for all these people who try to claim Jesus, even Dr. Chopra. I wonder what they would say if they were sitting with him, and he looked at them and said, but who do you say that I am? See, the question is still there for the church today, too. Who do you say that Jesus is? And while a lot of times in the church we are claiming faith, we have learned to profess faith, many times it hasn't gone to a deeper level of real confidence and trust in Jesus. What Dallas Willard says about coming to church is that many times when pastors and preachers stand up to speak is that they're speaking to a great wall of unbelief and then we're trying to get people to do things to behave in certain ways that are actually incongruous with their deep beliefs about Jesus, about God, about the world today is the day for you to ask yourself what do you think about Jesus Today's the day for you to sit with Jesus and have him communicate with you and say who do you think I am to let that question then inform the rest of your life. Okay, let's jump, into the, let's jump into the text here. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. The Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed on a lot. We're not going to get into that right now. But uh, they weren't usually united, but they're united here in opposing Jesus. And they asked him to show them a, a sign from heaven, maybe even to give them a sign in the heavens. And I've kept the translation. It's not usually translated this way, but really the same word that's usually translated sky is heaven. And if you read on, you'll see, you'll see that Jesus takes that term and, and keeps talking about it. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the heaven is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the heaven is red and threatening. Now, I'm not a meteorologist, and uh, I don't know much about predicting weather, but apparently this is something you can do. Look up at the sky and guess what the weather is going to be. Right? I don't usually do that myself, but maybe some of you do. Uh, this is what they were doing. They were predicting the weather based upon what it looked like in the sky in morning or evening. And Jesus says to them, you can do that. You know how to interpret the appearance of heaven, of the heaven, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And then he says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now this is the second time we've actually heard about the sign of Jonah. Earlier Jesus uh, Jesus was, was speaking about that sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he explains that, that, that it's connected to him being in the heart of the earth. Of course, they didn't know what he was talking about. He said, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights like Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And they didn't understand this was going to be the sign of his, his death and resurrection. But uh, That was a major sign. (laughs) And they still rejected that sign. But what Jesus is saying, you've seen all kinds of things and you can't interpret, you can't see. But but why does he say it's a a wicked thing to seek for a sign? Let me distinguish for you two kinds of signs, okay? Or two kinds of sign seekers. There's a sign seeker who wants to believe and asks for a sign. Like Gideon in the Old Testament. And he laid the fleece out for God to give him a sign. And he wasn't rejected for that. There's also the sign seekers who demand a sign because they don't want to believe. And that's what the Sadducees and Pharisees are doing here. They've got all kinds of signs happening all around them. They've got all kinds of witnesses all around them. And yet they come to Jesus and said, show us another sign. Give us, give us something that will convince us. Right? And for people like that, usually nothing will ever convince them. Demanding a sign because you don't want to believe. And I urge you today, if you're in here, given an audience like this, it's very possible that we have people in here who are uh, questioning your faith, doubting your faith. There's nothing wrong with questioning, nothing wrong with doubting. I've done a lot of that myself over the years. But I urge you to think about your reasons why. I was meeting with an atheist or agnostic, I guess, years ago, I had a long conversation with him. Drove down to to meet him in in Tennessee. I was in Kentucky. And uh, we went back and forth talking about reasons, evidences, arguments for the Christian faith. And finally, at one point, I stopped and I asked him, I said, do you want Christianity to be true? And I appreciated his honesty. He just stopped and said, you know, I don't know. Many, many times, when people are rejecting Jesus or saying, I need you to show me something else, it's because deep down they don't want it to be true. Not always, okay? Not always. And I don't mean to put you in a bad spot if you're in here with, with sincere doubts, but I ask you to do some introspection. I remember, I believe it was Aldous Huxley who had written about, uh, I don't know enough about Aldous Huxley to even talk, I assume based on the quote that he was one of these guys who written about the meaninglessness of life. Because He said, all that talk we did about meaninglessness in life, this is later, years later, he said, it was only because we wanted to have sex. Hmm. Search yourself and ask yourself, what are your reasons that you have for disbelieving, okay? A wicked generation says, Give me a sign. I won't believe. I'm demanding a sign from you. That's what Jesus deals with here first, and he refuses to accommodate them, to give into their demands. Then we get to verses 5 through 12. When the disciples reach the other side, we, here we move, you see, from a settled disbelief to a dull belief an unperceiving belief. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Here they were, the ones who asked the question, and he tells them, Beware of the leaven. Leaven that goes into bread. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. Oh, no. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith... Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? You see, Jesus is getting ready for them to to go forward. You're about to see that there's going to be a major transition coming up in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is going to take them to Jerusalem, and he's going to suffer and die. He needs to know that there are people who are getting it, people who understand. And he says to them when 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 they start talking about bread, he says, Don't you get it yet? You're still not getting it? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered then? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were spiritually dull. They could not perceive, and it was discouraging to Jesus. I have to tell you, I wonder if Jesus still gets discouraged with his church when he sees the kind of things we get hung up on. The kind of things we argue about, the fusses and fights that we have. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus sometimes say, why don't you yet perceive? And Let me tell you, false teaching is still a danger. Teaching that is similar to the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is still a danger. And Jesus says, beware. And some of you, maybe many of you were raised up in false teaching. And you have to be on guard lest those seeds that were planted grow up and and shield your heart, grasp hold of your heart and keep you from the deep knowledge that Christ wants to give. It can be a a hyper-liberalism or hyper conservatism on either side. And it can keep us from seeing. The Pharisees and Sadducees, for all their differences, they were united in, in seeing uh, or in opposing Jesus and trying to convince people that he's not the Messiah. But there are ways in which we can claim that Jesus is the Messiah and still be very blind to the beauty and depth of the Christian faith. And the ways that we, we miss, we don't have spiritual senses to see. The powerful thing that Jesus has done and what he wants us to see. We've been, we've been entrusted with the gospel, with this powerful message of salvation about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We're meant to be bringing life and truth and goodness everywhere we go. And we get hung up on little details of arguments. Even things that are important, but they're not most important. But then we treat them like most important. Some of us recently were having a discussion about the Lord's Supper, a number of us in here. And I, let me, please let me preface this by saying I'm not targeting anybody with this, okay? Uh, this is not uh, meant to be a shot at anybody at all. It's just a, uh, an illustration of, of the point that I think of. So I am one who thinks that the Lord's Supper really matters, and it matters how you do it. So, so put me down for that. It, but I have to wonder sometimes, given my past, the kind of the way we, we were nitpicky with it, and we, we got into terrible, fierce debates with people about exactly how it's done, I wonder sometimes, Jesus is saying, do you not perceive? Do you not perceive what's really happening at the table? The incredible mystery of the body and blood of Christ I've offered to you? And you want to talk about bread. Did we not bring bread? We cannot allow ourselves to be sucked in by the false teaching that fails to see what's important. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees always do. They fail to see what's really important. And in light of that, they go astray. and it's a lack of faith. You see? He doesn't say, oh, you have little intelligence. Although we might expect him to say that. That's not what he says. You have little faith because the faith that really knows God perceives things, can see spiritually. The spiritual perception that stagnates on touch not, taste not, handle not," as the Apostle Paul says. This is a shallow faith. This is really a lack of spiritual perception. Beware of false teaching. Okay. Now we get to the main part of this text. I told you, give me 20 minutes, and I would ask for one more thing, okay? I'm just going to ask you, to give me 20 more minutes. Just kidding, just kidding, I don't need 20 more minutes. I just need a little bit more time. OK. So now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now Brother Terry talked about Caesarea Philippi uh, several weeks ago, and it was a city of a, a center of pagan worship. The, the uh, Old Testament god we call Baal, Baal. Uh, he was worshiped there, and then the Greek god Pan was worshiped there and eventually the emperor himself was worshipped there. This is a center of pagan worship. I do not think it's incidental that Jesus raises the question of his identity here, at this place, where so many other gods are being worshipped. Here at Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar and Herod Philip, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Apparently they're thinking that one of the prophets has been reincarnated or else raised from the dead. These are compliments to most people, but Jesus doesn't take them. Instead, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, that's the Messiah, that's the King, The son of the living God. I don't know why Jesus didn't tell them sooner who he was. Perhaps he knew that they just needed to go on the journey with him so that they discovered it on their own. Perhaps you have been on the journey with Jesus yourself. Perhaps today he looks at you and says, but who do you Who do you say that I am? This is a pivotal moment. He's about to turn their attention to his arrest and execution. They need to know. They need to know who he is now. And this identity of Jesus is something that everybody has to wrestle with. We may say sometimes, well, I don't need to believe things. I'm a good person. That's the lie that we've come to believe in our society, that our beliefs actually don't connect to our behaviors. But actually what you think about Jesus will impact the way you live. And if you don't actually trust him as the great one he claimed to be, the scriptures portray him as, then you'll end up trusting somebody else. Yourself, some public figure, some of your friends. It's when we see Jesus as the greatest. When we can say with Peter, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That our behavior changes. We say, we trust you. We're throwing in life with you. From now on, so many times we learn things associated with Christ, even good things, teachings of Christ, practices of the church. But have we really learned Christ? Have we really asked ourselves, what do we think about him? Because what we believe about him will infuse everything else. Everything else will be infused by what we think about the Christ. Jesus didn't say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think about me. This is what a lot of our people in our society would like to say. It doesn't really matter what you think about me. Just as long as you agree with my teachings. Just as long as you are a good person. Jesus thought it mattered what people thought about him. They needed to see it. Now let's look at when Peter gives this beautiful confession. And we're going to stop at verse 17. Jesus' response Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of John, is the way you can translate that. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you know what that's saying? Have you ever, have you ever sat with that teaching a little bit? What he's saying to Peter is, is that you can't get this on your own, you can't just arrive at this truth deeply held conviction about Christ. on your own. God has to do something in your heart. Are you here as someone who is convinced and convicted that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? If you are, let me tell you something that should be good news to your ears. God has worked in your heart. You didn't do it by yourself. You have come to believe in the Christ, the Son of the living God, because God has worked on you. The living God, the Father, has revealed it to you. Let me tell you about a danger. And I have a master's degree in Christian apologetics. I believe in the place of arguing to defend the faith, and I'm comfortable doing that. But let me tell you about one of the dangers in it. It's an important enterprise. It's good as far as it goes. But one of the dangers in Christian apologetics is... It's, it, for for people who don't know it's just defending the faith reasoning about the faith one of the dangers in it is that if you depend too heavily upon it you come to think that you can kind of rationalize your way to God and that your faith in God is based upon your cleverness and then the first step in the Christian faith for you becomes a a step of self-dependence see how smart I was? I defeated my agnostic friend in an argument. That doesn't mean you belong to Jesus. Just because you can beat somebody in an argument about God doesn't mean you belong to Jesus. And here's the truth this may be discouraging for some people to hear, but Richard Dawkins, or one of those people like that, the famous atheist, would beat most of us in an argument. Do you know that? Because he's just more highly trained. Richard Dawkins would have beaten my dear mentor friend, I've talked to you about, uh, 80 something year old Miss Ruby. He would have destroyed her in an argument. (laughs) This woman in whom the light of Christ shined all the time. It would not have disturbed her faith one bit. because she was living from a reality that Richard Dawkins knows nothing about. There was a deep awareness of God in that woman that could not be overcome by some of his atheist arguments. Listen, I'm not trying to say Richard Dawkins has the best arguments, okay? He doesn't. The best arguments support Christianity. And like I've said, I've spent a lot of time in this kind of stuff. I'm not just speaking for something I haven't, haven't at least uh, dabbled in. Uh, so, so don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm, I am an advocate for taking hard questions and wrestling with them. And if you're struggling with your faith, come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about the logic and the reasoning, if that's where you are right now. But I want to say to you that you can't depend on your logic and your reasoning for a walk with Christ, for the fullness of that kind of life. That's a life that comes from God. And when you really get it, God is working on your heart. And Jesus says, Peter, you didn't get this on your own. My Father has granted this to you. Praise God today if you're in here convicted about Jesus Christ. God has shown you something. He wants you. He loves you. He's chosen you. To be his own. Not that you don't have any choice in it yourself. But God has chosen you. He's revealed the truth to your heart. And this is the beautiful, beautiful blessing that we get to claim in Christ. God wants us. We know the truth. Because we have an anointing from the Holy One. As John says. This is the divine revelation that we need to flood the church today. We need the presence of God to flood the church today. Intelligence and reasoning have their place in that flood, but we need it to be God-sourced, God-centered, (laughs) God-sustained. And we need this this revelation that points us, that points our friends, to Jesus Christ. We point one another to Jesus Christ. That's my job as a preacher today. I want you to know this. My job is to turn your attention to Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And if I fail to do that, I am failing you miserably. If for some reason I get up here and manage to get your attention focused on me over time, you're going to be disappointed. Either you're going to exaggerate my goodness in a way or you don't know me, or you're going to be disappointed in my weakness. But if I point you to Jesus Christ, he'll never let you down. He is the one who has been revealed to us. And he is the one we proclaim and preach today. He is the one the, it, the world still needs to know. Now, uh, is the video ready? Can we play the video now? Okay, let me, let me give you a brief introduction to this video. This is Jordan Peterson. Now, I know some of you guys... I've heard multiple people in this church talk about Jordan Peterson before, and uh, he is uh, a very impressive impressive guy, brilliant thinker, burst onto the scene maybe five years ago and became overnight famous, and uh, he's one of the leading intellectuals in our world today. I've prayed for this man, even though I've not, please, I don't know his thought nearly as well as some of you do, and, and don't hold me uh, uh, accountable for anything you don't like that he says, okay? But, uh but uh, I think he's an impressive guy. He seems to be an honest man. He's not a Christian, but he has had a lot of affinity for Christian moral values. And uh, I've prayed that he would come to to know the Lord. And this just surprised me. I came across this a couple months ago online, this video uh, of him talking about Jesus. Now, let me give you just a little heads up. He's talking about some deep stuff. It's not really necessary that you understand all of it. He's talking about how the narrative world, the history of of philosophy and, and myth, talk about things that are dying and rising gods and things like that. And he's saying, but, but you actually have something like this in history with Jesus. And, and he's saying it looks like maybe the two connect. Maybe it's real. Maybe this story is true. Now, if you don't understand all the details and, and the depth of this, don't worry about it. I, the, what, what I want you to get is how he wrestles with the idea of who Jesus is here and what he believes about him. And it's a striking what happens. So, uh, roll the tape. Okay,
1: so you can think about Christ from a psychological perspective. And the, the, criti- the critic my critic, this particular critic that I've been reading, said, well, that that doesn't differentiate Christ much from a whole sequence of dying and resurrecting mythological gods. And, of course, people have made that claim in comparative religion. Joseph Campbell did that, and Jung to a lesser degree, I would say, but Campbell did that. But the difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a there's a representation of there's a historical representation of his of of his existence as well now you can debate whether or not that's genuine you can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that but it doesn't matter in some sense because this well it does but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story and so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth and in some sense Christ is the union of those two things the problem is is i probably believe that but i don't okay. know i don't i'm amazed at my own belief and i don't <laughs> understand it like because i've seen sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch you know, that's union synchronicity, yeah. and I've seen that many times in my own life. And so, in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real. Like, we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world, but the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that, in principle, is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to. That seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. Well, but I still don't know what to make of it. It's too. Partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. If you believed in the story of Christ, or if you believed that history and, and let's say, the narrative meet, let's Both, say. I yeah. think. I think you. Because when you believe that, you buy both those stories. You believe that the narrative and the objective can actually touch.
0: It's a powerful video. What would happen to you? This is the question Dr. Peterson asks. What would happen to you if you actually believed that? If you believe that all the stories, the magic, the, the, the fantasy that's been placed in the world actually had a real touchstone in history what if you believed that god had done something that people had only dreamed about that what had been make believe for many people had actually come true in jesus christ that's what dr peterson is saying and he's saying it's like it catches him off guard i think i believe that and then he just loses it and he says it's it's terrifying See, we've gotten too comfortable with what we say about Jesus in our church services. We've gotten comfortable with a profession that costs us nothing and it makes little difference in our lives. But when you see someone like Dr. Peterson wrestling with the truth, he's somebody for, as an outsider who's sticking his toes in that water saying, this changes everything. Jesus looks at Dr. Peterson just like he looks at you, just like he looked at Peter and says, who do you say that I am? Are you ready to answer that question? Let me close by reading to you some words of C.S. Lewis. The pantheist God, that's those who say the world is God, does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish for him like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. The shock comes at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue we have been following. It is always shocking to meet life when we thought we were alone. Okay, don't worry again about some of these, the depth of it if you're not following everything. This is shocking to meet life when we thought we were alone. And therefore, this is the very point at which we may draw back. I would have done so myself if I could. Lewis had been an atheist and didn't want to believe. And proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us. A vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord perhaps approaching at infinite speed. The hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant to come to that. We're still supposing he had found us. What if that was a real footstep in the hall? What if it's all true? And what if God himself has visited this planet... And what if he stood on the ground that had been claimed by the pagans and looked out at his disciples and said, Who do you think I am? Right there, where the emperor was worshipped, what if he said, You're right, and you're blessed. I'm the king. I'm the son of the living God. This is the story that Matthew is telling us. And this is the story that guides the church forward. Jesus Christ, God's chosen one, God's anointed, our Savior and our Lord. That's him. Young people are here today with impact. You're always here, lots of you anyway. But we're thinking about the young people today. Something that I I love, it's a paraphrase, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer said one time, a long time ago, he said, people say young people are the future of the church. He said, young people aren't the future of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is the future of the church. And that's the truth. The church is secure and it's going forward because Jesus Christ is its future. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Amen.